We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty-gritty so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... Darius McCollum, the most prolific train thief in New York history, part two. Who was Darius McCollum? He was an autistic man growing up in New York City in the 1970s who, after spending his early days riding the subway with his mother, developed a deep and passionate obsession for trains and the Metropolitan Transportation Authority that would consume his life. As a young child, he learned every single subway route throughout the entirety of the city by heart, memorized every procedure for train operation, and eventually started hanging out with MTA workers who taught him how to drive the trains. But being a passenger wasn't enough, and he spent the next 40 years stealing and driving trains and buses throughout New York City, getting caught each time, and then going to prison for years, and then doing it all over again. And despite the fact that the whole thing could have been solved at any minute by just giving the man a real job at the MTA, or at least putting him into some sort of state-mandated therapy to manage his compulsions to drive trains, this might be the single bleakest example of somebody being utterly fucked over by the system in history. take the kid out of New York City, but you can't take New York City out of the kid. By the late 2000s, Darius was divorced, homeless, hadn't seen his parents in years, and had spent most of his life in jail for stealing buses and trains. Though he was in and out of prison all of this time, and became notorious all over the city as the, quote, train nut, he kind of slipped into the background radiation of society, until September of 2010, when he was arrested again for impersonating a driver and stealing a city bus. This time, perhaps because he had so many crimes on his record and was facing a much larger sentence, his arrest made national news, with people all over the world learning for the first time about Darius's 30-year saga. Darius sat in jail at Rikers Island, awaiting trial until well into 2011. But he also grabbed the attention of several advocates, people who sympathized with Darius and wanted to help him, or were just fascinated with the story. This was because at some point during Darius's 30-year cycle of stealing trains and living in prison, he was finally diagnosed with what was at the time referred to as Asperger's syndrome. I'm really good with trains, but I can't seem to figure out people. And it's hard for me to tell what someone is thinking or feeling. I get confused in social situations. I have trouble making friends. People in the spectrum, they like routine and they like rituals and they like schedules, and trains run on a schedule. The transportation system provides a routine schedule every single day, 365 days per year, unless it's a leap year, of course. 
Asperger syndrome was a neurodevelopmental condition first observed by Austrian pediatrician Hans Asperger, who, in 1944, published a study about children he observed as having a lack of empathy, poor social skills, tendency to repeat words, phrases, and actions as a coping mechanism, an often obsessive habit of fixating on one topic or interest, and clumsy motor skills. Asperger originally described this condition as, quote, autistic psychopathy. In 1981, a British psychiatrist named Lorna Wing published a series of studies about children experiencing similar symptoms and proposed naming the condition Asperger syndrome in an attempt to differentiate it from classical autism. At the time, classical autism was thought to involve significant delays in verbal development, many children remaining nonverbal their entire lives. A dramatic disengagement from social interaction defined by total aloofness towards or complete lack of awareness of other people around them, a range of intellectual development between severe learning disabilities to higher than average intellectual development, and an obsessive tendency to fixate on repetitive actions or interests to a debilitating degree. By contrast, the research done by Asperger and Wing suggested that children with Asperger syndrome largely developed language at a more advanced rate than neurotypical children, often had higher than average intelligence, desired social interaction but had difficulty reading other people's emotions or showing the proper amount of empathy to function in them, and a less debilitating fixation on topics or interests that presented itself as intense passions for certain hobbies, objects, or activities. Wing's papers popularized distinction between the two, and by 1994, Asperger syndrome was officially added to the newest edition of the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM-IV. However, throughout the years, it came to light that Dr. Asperger had ties to the Nazi party, and that some of his work throughout the late 30s and 40s involved assisting them with child euthanasia programs. As a result of this, as well as medical advancements in the field of neurological development, a few years after Darius McCollum's 2010 arrest, Asperger syndrome and classical autism were removed from the DSM-5 in 2013. They were replaced with the recombined classification of autism spectrum disorder, a new way of studying autism as a spectrum of different symptoms and disabilities that a person can fall within. ASD is broken up into three spectral zones, levels 1, 2, and 3, and while not exactly a one-to-one -one comparison, what was originally considered Asperger syndrome is now generally considered autism level one, a type of autism that typically involves a higher level of language development and a generally lower necessity for third-party care. A person can fall into one of the levels, partially between two, or even change levels from day to day depending on their needs, but generally stay on one level. Many people are satisfied with the change mostly because of the Nazi illusions of the original name. However, there is a growing number of people within the community that feel dissatisfied with the collapsing of the different classifications and identify much more with Asperger syndrome than ASD, simply because they feel like the blanket spectrum classification doesn't do enough to cover the nuances of their disability or adequately differentiate their needs in society from other autistics. The really, the, the interesting thing about, the, there, there's like multiple layers to the way that this story interacts with autism and Asperger syndrome um, that I find really interesting and strange. And uh, it, it just leads me to bigger questions about in the same way that we've talked about in the, in this story and others of like, I wish I could have been there and seen what these specific conversations were like. It leads me to just these other multiple questions about how his autism was was dealt with on a day-to-day -day basis in these conversations around him because there's sort of like, and we'll get more into this as we go on, but there's there's the stuff that was happening at the time where 
in the in the eighties and nineties uh, and even two thousands, um, as he's getting arrested and put in jail for all these extended periods of time, he has Asperger syndrome. He's talking about having Asperger syndrome. He has some advocates that are there, kind of talking about the fact that he has Asperger syndrome and the fact that it's causing him to have this compulsion to drive these trains. And there's this lack of public understanding and consciousness about autism and sort of what it is. And it's sort of treated as this like, oh, you know, there's something wrong with you or, you know, very, very demonized, very hyper masculinized in the way that autism has historically been very um, uh, hyper, uh, hyper uh, perceived as a, a violent and erratic and unpredictable thing that makes you a dangerous person. So there's that going on. But then even as time goes on, even when it gets when it, when it gets to 2010 that we just covered where he he makes national news again for some reason, for some reason they start talking about him in the news again, even though he's been arrested and and jailed for this countless times. In 2010 this arrest makes national news and then people actually start talking about Darius and he gets a lot more advocates many of them that are just advocates for um you know homeless people dealing with the recidivism of getting arrested and putting in and getting put in prison over and over again but many who are within the sort of like uh autistic advocates community that come that show up to be advocates for him but I find that even even then, like that clip where we just talked about where the, the the woman who's like part of some autism advocacy group, she's talking about Asperger syndrome slash autism and saying like, you know, people who are autistic, uh, you know, they like routines and they, uh, you know, they, they want there to be like these rules and structure around things and trains have rules and structure. And while that's like, while that's true in a, in a way, I I feel like it's it's just oddly lacking in nuance of what autism actually is, and we see throughout the years as it gets up into like more kind of recent times as we're going to cover in the story that it seems like it seems like the everybody um, involved in this story, the judges, the cops, even the advocates have this weirdly regressive view of what autism is that's almost like this infantilization of Darius. Uh, they talk about him like he's... They, they Literally, there's this guy who talks about him like he's like an adult child, uh, this guy who's like a like a like um, an autism advocate that refers to him in this very infantilized way of like, you know, how could you put this guy in jail? He's basically just a child um, that I find just very strange. And just weirdly regressive of everything that I know about the uh, the the levels of normalization and advancement in like public consciousness about autism that I've come to know in the last you know ten years. And yeah, I don't really know what to do with that. How much of the the infantilization thing do you think relates to the fact that there's this uncontrollable impulse, and that's the advocacy groups or individuals attempting to communicate that impulse? to civilians or uneducated people in a way that people can understand versus they actually do think that. Yeah, that's a that's a good point cuz I I yeah, I I totally see that it's like, you know, these people cuz as we'll 
basically these these courts, these judges and these and these people, they don't understand it at all. And they're 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 they treat it as this very they either just like don't even factor it in. And they're just like this. You're making an excuse or they treat it as like as we'll get into very unfortunately, they treat it as like you are like mentally insane. You are uh, mentally uh, criminally insane. So I can see how the advocates might look at that and be like, these people don't understand this. So we're just going to we're going to like pitch it to them in this way that will hopefully like light up some kind of empathy uh, nodes here and there in the right ways. So we're going to present it as like he's like a child, um, actually, in the way that a lot of people tend to do in 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 like criminal court, uh, like the Menendez brothers, those guys that like murdered their parents and. The, the lawyers like dressed them up in like matching sweatsuits and made them like not cut their hair and wear baggy clothes to make them seem more childlike. And they their whole defense was like, these are just boys. They're just little boys, even though they were like 27 or something like that. Yeah, but also they were serially abused by their parents. Yeah, yeah, there was a, there was a whole other factor of that. But that was famously the their the the defense tactic was to make them seem like children, even though they were like like objectively adults. Um, but yeah, that, that's a good point. I, I, I don't think I really considered that, that that was like a strategy. I'm not saying it is or it isn't. I'm just I'm just curious about your perspective on it, because it, there's a part of me that could see it being either one. You know, there's a part of me that could see it being just the regressive nature of our culture, not being able to parse those things accurately and just being fucking shitty. And especially if, with a person of color, not giving them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, and that's another that's another ask that's another layer on top of it is that not only is he an autistic man, um, he's an autistic black man. So historically, the 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 type of autistic person that tends to get the most, you know, number one support and also kind of like public sympathy are young white boys. That's the classical idea of what an autistic person is: is a young white boy. Um, and then there's various layers of intersectionality around that of like levels of acceptance and sympathy and support for different types of autistic people that, you know, goes on a spectrum itself from like adult autistic people who are given less support and empathy than young children. And then even further, uh, you know, women who classically have just never are very highly underdiagnosed as autistic and just have never really been given that space of of um, being able to sort of own that disability and then also, you know, people of color who even more are given less space to like live in that disability. And, you know, like Darius, if you have this problem, you're not like an autistic person um, struggling with these issues. You are a dangerous, violent criminal. But but yeah, the the whole thing is just the, this the. So in in the first episode, we just talked about, you know, leading up into where we are now, just how fucked up this whole thing has been for him, just to, just in general, the way he's been just mistreated and not given a fair shake by the criminal justice system, um, just from a very kind of like more boilerplate standpoint, like he's a homeless black man who's just been brutalized by society in the way that many, many people have been. Um, this is another layer to it where there's also this aspect of like this, this profound level of lack of understanding or any kind of consideration for this very real, uh, disability that he has. I mean, he, 
of all the things, he was lucky enough to actually get medically diagnosed with this, which many people don't. So, you know, for whatever it's worth, he at least had the luxury of being able to say, like, I've been diagnosed with this and use that in, you know, his discussions and defense in court and things like that. But it never seemed to actually help him out any in, in any kind of demonstrable way other than just gaining advocates and people who wanted to, you know, be in his corner. I mean, it's the same thing we talked about last episode, too, where it's just like there has to be a better system for helping people in this situation. And of course, most people's aren't as dramatic as like a low key supervillain, right? Like he sounds like, you know, it's like Magpie, the the Batman villain, you know, where like she just steals anything that's shiny and that could be a trash can or it could be a diamond in a vault. Uh, and that's kind of this dude's thing where it's like he's just obsessed with fucking trains. He's the train master and like he can't help it. Right. So there has to be some way to harness the train master's skills for good. Like, it can't be that hard to just, like, walk around a train yard with this dude, you know? And we, I mean, you made this joke last episode, but we've seen that because we see that that train guy on TikTok. That's it. I mean, that that didn't exist then, but that was, that's the thing. He just loves trains and he goes out and he, like, watches his trains go by and he just, like, has these really, like, huge emotional reactions to them. And people love seeing that and that's that's just that's the outlet for it is like he has this tiktok channel gets millions of views by just going out to a train yard and just having an emotional reaction to a train driving by and the differentiating factor too is that that guy's in on the joke you know like he straps a camera to his head pointing down at his face at a bizarre angle in order to accentuate i'm not saying he doesn't love trains he obviously loves trains but he's performing for the camera and he's also filming himself in a way that accentuates the performance to a comical degree that makes it highly engaging and increases watch time, which then makes the algorithm push it to people, which then makes more people watch it, which means he can monetize the content and make a living off of basically just being excited about fucking trains. Darius's situation is distinctly different in that he's not in on the joke, you know, like it's a it's a compulsion. It's something he needs to do. And this is as opposed to the other guy, which is something that he probably wants to do and but doesn't need to like he would be okay if he didn't film himself, you know, and I think that there's a scenario that can't be that complicated of just like some low level politician understanding the differentiating and delineating demarcations of that and pairing this dude with like, all right, dude, two days a month, you're going to travel on this train and help us figure out how to how to improve things and hopefully that could you know quell some of those pent-up desires so the man wouldn't have to go to prison for this yeah and and you know like we were kind of talking about in the last episode like whatever that solution is like there's got to be something and uh i forgot to mention but i'll just say right now that you know the thing that i think of when i when we talk about that is the fact that i've seen or rather heard the the solution to those types of situations happen frequently. Um, I've I've talked about this on previous episodes of the show. I think I talked about this on the David Hahn store uh, episodes, but I've also referenced it elsewhere as well. That um, there's a there's a podcast called the Darknet Diaries, which is specifically sort of like true crime stories about um, hackers and data security, 
and frequently episodes of the show will be about young men, usually uh, teenagers, somewhere in the span the span of fourteen to seventeen, who get really into hacking, pen testing, social engineering, those kinds of things, and they'll get into some massive trouble. Like from a, from a data security standpoint, they do something that is like literally like call the FBI level of a big deal. And it's usually not actually like practically actually that big of a deal. Um, Kind of similar to this situation with Darius, where it's a big deal conceptually, but it's not actually a big deal literally where like one of the kids, he just went and changed something on the homepage of his school's website. He just like put up a picture that, and it was, and said like our principal sucks or something like that. Like, not literally that big of a deal, but from a data security standpoint, like a massive deal. Um, the fact that he just, the very fact that he did that. And he was, the, the FBI was called, the FBI got involved, he was arrested. Um, and this is one story, but there's m- many stories in the podcast that are almost identical to this, where in they get arrested and somebody within that situation, somebody at the FBI or whatever, recognizes I, you know, like in that movie Looper, I see the bad path. Like some, there's some adult who's like, I see where this, my, my involvement in this is a pivot point where this kid e- either in 20 years, he's in prison, just like live like a career criminal in and out of prison forever. Or he is working for the FBI as a, as a cybersecurity agent or as a, as a, um, consultant who's helping us to like catch bad guys basically um and they and then that ends up happening like they get jobs at the cia or at the fbi you know whatever for better or worse they they get jobs at those at those those alphabet organizations or they get jobs doing like private consulting for big tech firms and banks and things like that so they get they get caught and arrested for these massive like from a from a from a data security standpoint, these massive crimes, but instead of like, oh, we're just going to throw you in jail and fuck you, um, they see an opportunity to like everybody wins and they figure out a way to put that person's skill to use to keep them on the right side of the law. Yeah, completely. Like how many times have you seen people on the news in New York being like, the fucking MTA doesn't know what they're doing. The fucking subways. This is fucking bullshit. Like, there this guy this is probably the key the fucking bullshit and then he walks in and goes well actually it's 4.2 meters to the left and we would shave off an hour of commute time yeah and he genuinely is like a savant at least from all you know reports he is like a savant of like he's not just like oh i love trains like he's just like the best person that that knows everything about how the the mta system functions to the point where he was like going onto sites and like pointing out code violations and like whipping up, you know, whip, whipping a, a site into shape in a day where they were suddenly operating at like 50% more efficiency or whatever, whatever. So, yeah, absolutely. Also, I, I just I just have to say this now that we're talking about the, the TikTok train guy and stuff. The funniest thing about this whole story to me in, in whatever ways there's any kind of levity in this very dark, sad story there's this very common sort of discourse or discussion topic about the fact that like not every autistic person loves trains. And that's just kind of like a stereotype. 
it, it it's it's kind of funny to me because you know while that might be the case and while that's a thing that people talk about a lot like people get really annoyed at the idea of like the i that you know it's a stereotype that autistic people love trains um but then there's that that tiktok train guy and darius just fucking loves trains like i've like i don't think anyone's ever loved trains more than this person has ever loved trains like it's 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 like it's a competition between those two people i think of like who loves trains the most but also i gotta say and i I mean i don't know if i've ever said this on the podcast before but i think it's probably pretty self-explanatory but i am asd uh and i fucking love trains (laughs) not 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 to this degree i wish i wish that people could see the look on your face that was That was a crazed level of enthusiasm that you rarely reach. You're usually pretty even keel. Even when you're out here riffing or cracking jokes or whatever, it's from a very, it's from a position of kind of just like calmness usually. But your, that was, your eyes were circles when you said, <laughs> I love trains. <laughs> I, I just, it's, it's just funny to me. It's funny to me, this idea of just like all, like just the story as I was researching it and just thinking about, how it's all just kind of like going against this this discord as I see a lot of people being like, oh, not all fucking autistic people love trains. That's a that's a fucking harmful stereotype. It's but I, I, I love them. I love trains. Not not to this level. Not I'm not I don't go Darius Heights, but uh I've 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 loved trains since I was little I was a little kid. There's a there's a big uh there's a there's a place called Travel Town in uh in Griffith Park. And it's just a bunch. They they it's just a big uh, decommissioned train yard, and they have a bunch of trains. You can go on to a bunch of cars, like a caboose and a couple of other things. And there's some like old trains from like the 30s, like actual full sized like trains. And then if you go inside this building, they have this big giant sprawling model train set that's built up in there. Um, and I I love. Go! I love taking my kids to that and just fucking walking around. It's amazing. And and I and I more importantly, you fucking love trains. Yes. No. But the the discussion about the discussion about uh, Darius loving the subway system specifically and loving being down there and even you know that thing that that lady said, which I once again felt was kind of like unnuanced. But the thing of like, oh, autistic people, autistic people love schedules and the train is on a schedule and. You can expect it to go here and there and it's like math where it's just it's going to go to this place and you just have to count the stops. And that's why autistic people love trains um, that I, I I actually really do feel that not maybe not that specifically, but in a similar way, I love being down in the subway system in L.A. It's not just like a trap. It's not just a transportation thing for me. It's not just a like. Oh, it's just it's convenient and you can get on the train and go here or whatever. Like I just I I love being down there. There's something just very very go getting on the subway and riding like five stops to some other place. There's something about it that's just so therapeutic to me. I just love it so much. To the point where we literally our house, we literally chose our house because of its proximity to the North Hollywood subway station. Like we picked our house so I could easily walk to the train station. Not really relevant anymore because I don't really go anywhere. So I haven't actually rid- ridden the train in a while, at, you know, post 2020. But before that, I was I was fucking jumping on that thing as often as I could. I mean, we met on the train. Well, kind of. Or rather, you saw me. We didn't meet, we, but you saw me on the train from a distance. And you were like, ah, that one. 
Yeah, but once again, I did. I didn't want you to ruin my experience. Like I, I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna interrupt my zen-like oneness with the train to meet to you know talk to you on it. Of course, that would have been selfish of me. Of course, yes. But yeah, what what are, what are your what are your thoughts on this stuff so far? Just uh, I mean, we've talked about it before, but I don't. Did you know about the fact that like they don't really call it Asperger's anymore because he was like a fucking Nazi? child murderer i i you know what it's funny i i feel like i called it asperger's in the first episode and i did i did know that because i listened to some npr piece or something about specifically about him and his nazi connections like two or three years ago but i had completely forgotten about it until you said oh yeah they don't really call it asperger's anymore it wasn't top of mind that it was no longer something that people uh refer to it as uh that's for sure um yeah, I mean, I don't know that my thoughts are that much more complex than yours. Like, I think it's fucked up that the system screwed him this way. It's sad that he has this compulsion. It's understandable because of, you know, his diagnosis. It's unfortunate that society has just completely failed him. The one component that we haven't touched on a lot, which I find very both depressing and fascinating, is his relationship with his parents and the fact that from an exterior point of view, I think there's an uncharitable initial instinct of what the fuck? Why did they move to Florida? How could they? And then on second thought, looking at it with a little bit more empathy of that they're people too and that he has this compulsion and he's an adult and this continual cycle of arrest and homelessness and needing help is a burden on them as well. You can kind of understand how at a certain point it's like what where where is the delineating demarcation line like where is the you have to figure this out for yourself or I got to save myself as a parent like I think about that a lot with like heroin addicts or meth addicts and their relationships with their parents like that's just an unwinnable scenario it's an I, I cannot even I have some family members who've dealt with that and I can't really understand it like I, I on a ones and zeros like yeah I totally get what's going on but the emotional toll it must take to have to basically sever a connection with your child because that child is being controlled by this external thing and they are not themselves and they do these insane things that you can't predict and things that are actively harmful to you and so out of self-defense you have to sever that connection is just insane it's it's i there's no you know and and this is I, i'm curious if this scenario is that i don't see how it couldn't but i'm sure i'm sure curious if it is that or if it's no they just wanted to fucking retire they were just like you'll sort it out and it didn't happen yeah i think i think that there's it's it's a it's definitely conceptually and ethically very layered um where i can see many aspects of both sides of that um I definitely think that I guess to try to like very cleanly delineate it into two uh, modes of 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 approach, there's the side of it where absolutely 100 percent at a certain point, whenever Darius is in his 30s and he's getting arrested for stealing trains, um, you know, his increasingly aging parents uh, you know, of course, they're going to end up kind of protecting their own health and well-being by retreating from that situation, pulling back, um, you know, to a certain degree, disengaging and kind of saying, you know, that at this point, you've kind of made these decisions in your life and you've got to figure them out and we can't help you forever. Um, 
to a certain degree, I think that that's definitely understandable for, you know, fully understandable. Um, on the other... It is, but it is, but it's also not. Like, it's just, you know, from a societal standpoint, you know, you were brought up to think that your parents will do everything for you or you'll do anything for your children. And then that axiom becomes tested in the real world when you are faced with these unwinnable scenarios. And it's, I just do not envy that. I, I Yeah, it's just so bleak. It's so bleak. Yeah, and there's, al- there's also little details here and there that kind of test my um, alignment with that, where, you know, whenever whenever Darius was, what was it, nine, ten, they stuck him in a mental institution for nine months. They were basically like, he's screaming, stick him in this fucking horrific place and just leave him alone as a 10-year-old child, just like his parents are just gone and he's just in this fucking building with these strangers poking and prodding him and pumping him full of medications like that, that that's not something that I could ever bring myself to do um, unless it was very dire, let alone whenever, you know, a child is showing some behavioral problems, at least from what it was described. It just didn't seem to me like anything I would ever even remotely fathom considering sticking my child in a mental institution for. Um, and then there's also the aspect of, you know, it's not really covered here, but if you watch the documentary, a lot of, cause there's interviews with his mom, um, his dad seemed to be completely disengaged from the thing. Like he talks about in the documentary that his dad just like was never home. He was only home on Sundays and he just like, didn't really care about him. He wasn't like mean or bad. He just like had, he was just like a, a dad in the 1960s. He was just like, I'm here drinking my schlitz and then I'm going to go to work. Uh, don't talk to me. Um, and, but his mom was, was depicted as sort of like being obsessed with him. Um, but also on the other hand, it similarly, you know, a product of her time, she also seemed just from interviews and details of it that we don't necessarily cover here just seemed, seemed to be kind of like, though she loved him a lot was also kind of like, held at a distance from him by her sort of like very conservative religious values where as he started to get in trouble with the law it was like oh you're you've got you've got you're a criminal like you are you're a criminal i can't i can't help you that's ungodly that you've that you've fallen in with the with the refuse of this world there was like there there was this like failure to support because of the 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 religious values that she had, um, which I don't necessarily agree with, um, so I, there's there's like a there's like a point in the timeline where it becomes fully understandable that they would disengage as they're aging, as he continues to show that he's not going to change these behaviors. But there were there were there were points along the way where it was much more understandable that they should have supported and helped him much more than they did. And they didn't because of a bunch of social mores from the 1960s and 70s around, you know, people being degenerates or like not deserving help because they're ungodly in in a, in a way or whatever. And also, how many people in the how many people in the 1970s are even like aware of autism or Asperger syndrome or, you know, mental health disorders like that? no understanding of that either. Um, just a, a, an ignorance of that. And then these like sort of like religious and social values that kind of you know compel people to uh you know say you know you you know you gotta 
you gotta, you gotta get right with God and pick yourself up by your bootstraps. And, you know, I can't help you there. Only you and God can figure that out, that type of thing. Um, in fact, she, uh, yeah. And in fact, one, she literally says in the documentary, she says that, uh, she gave him to God, which is, which is dark. Man, man, that's, if, if that isn't a cop out. All right. So that, but see, that kind of answers, that kind of answers my question of like, was it, was it them being like, look, this is just too much. We don't know how to extricate our son from this illness and there's nothing we can do. And we have to, at a certain point, draw the line. Or was it an apathy towards the ideals of an altruistic parenthood? And obviously, it was a little bit of both, seems, maybe. A little bit of both, a little bit of both. But also, from what you're saying, maybe a little bit more towards the apathetic uh, side of things than we would all probably like. Yeah, it wasn't as cut and dry as David Hahn's life, where it was like, there's no debate here. You guys fucked this shit up. Like, you you guys ruined him. Um, This is a little bit more in a gray area. Um, but I definitely think that as I kind of said in the thesis of the opening thesis statement of this, of like, there's these three, uh, stop gaps of protection for people. It starts at the family level. Um, and then it goes to society and then the system and, you know, people get caught into the Venus fly trap of the system and they never come out. Um, the, you know, it seemed like they, it wasn't, it wasn't the abject failure of David Hahn's parents, but it was like, the the stumbling where they didn't quite catch him as he started to slip they kind of didn't they didn't get the grasp and he slipped through their hands and then you know went on and i think that they i think they probably could have done that if they had uh tried a little harder or just not been so uh focused on these arbitrary ideas of like going to jail is unchristian once johnny laws got you you're no longer ours However, none of this was being discussed in 2010 when Darius was arrested. He had the Asperger's diagnosis, which his advocates attempted to argue was the cause of his compulsive need to hijack trains. But not a whole lot was publicly understood about Asperger's or autism at the time. And the courts and media basically treated him like some kind of invalid or crazy person. In fact, having this disability openly known may have hurt him more than helped. That's a little bit of editorializing on my part. They do say some stuff like that in some of in the documentary and some of the other like the blogs from advocates and things like that. Um, but the, I I definitely I, I definitely understand that perspective. I definitely you know see the idea of like I really relate to the idea of and I'm sure it was way worse, infinitely worse for him for a variety of reasons. But this idea of you find this thing out about yourself and it explains a lot of stuff explains a lot of problems and struggles you have. It might even explain conflicts and issues with other people, interpersonal struggles that you have and you've had for years. It just explains it all. And it's not like an excuse, but it's like, this is why I'm struggling like this. And it, it kind of like, in the beginning, it feels like it's like taking this tremendous weight off. It's opening a door. It's lifting something off of you. And you can kind of say like, oh, like the reason why this is happening is because of this thing. And now that I know this, I can I can work on fixing these things or overcoming these things. And other people can understand that and they can work with me on overcoming these things and have more understanding in certain in certain situations and not necessarily just use it as a catch all excuse to get away with any kind of behavior. But just like the the knowledge of it is 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 enlightening in a way that is that feels like you have a new lease on life and you can fix everything 
And to a certain degree, that is true. But what kind of ends up happening is that over time, in certain situations, that the knowledge of that ends up can end up becoming weaponized against you. The thi- that there are because not everybody is going to have the platonic ideal of level of of sensitivity and understanding of that thing that you assume or hope people will have. And so a person who you think like, oh, we can solve this problem because now you understand this to them. It's just more ammunition to blame you and attack you for the situation happening in the first place to the point where, you know, I I mean, I'm not I'm not I don't for most of the time I've known about my diagnosis, I would not dare tell anybody because, you know, like, for instance, um, I, I, you know, I've I've managed teams of people at at relatively large companies. I've had, you know, five, 10, 20 employees underneath me that I'm managing, you know, independently. Um, and if I'm being honest, I don't think that they would have allowed me that responsibility if they knew that I was autistic. Um, so that's just not something I have historically told people for not because I'm ashamed of it. Um, I'm not ashamed of it at all. Uh, but because I just can't, I can't, uh, uh, I, I can't deal with the idea of people pathologizing me in a way that would actually, um, end up hurting more than helping me where people learn this information. And then suddenly they start thinking, looking at you in a different way, um, and treating you differently in ways that are, uh, detrimental in, in, in a very, in a variety of situations. And this is like, this is like the. This is the 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 worst case scenario nightmare situation that you fear when you think that is this right here. What what about the I mean, is it mostly just working from home now, like and not being in that environment that's changed that perspective for you or? Yeah, wor- working from home, being more being more, uh, you know, economically independent. You know, I, I work full time as a consultant now, so i I work for various companies, but I run everything through our business and I don't uh, I'm not a, I'm not a full time employee of any company. Um, but even 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 if it wasn't the case, it's also just like a level of meditation on the issue that I that I've been having since 2020. Like there's something about just like whenever that happened and everyone was at home and you start to, you sever these social connections that you had and you start to have to think about like who you are as a person that's independent of I work at this company and I go there every day and I am this thing and I do these things every day and I talk to these people you have to really like sit with yourself and rethink some things whenever you just are cut off from that and I think you know over the over the last couple of years I just started to realize like that I don't, I'm just not, I'm not, it's not that I don't care because I still have that thought of like, ah, I'm a little worried if I tell X person that it will affect their treatment of me and that might be detrimental to me in certain ways. But it's just this, la- it's just this like, it's this like level of, it's this, it's this level of like thinking that it's more important to have that identity than it is to like protect myself in that way, I guess. And by have that identity, do you mean be aware of those things for yourself and have that diagnosis so that you can start working through things and growing as a person? Or do you mean have that as have that identity as just accepting another part of yourself that you kind of already knew was, was there to begin with, but now you're just 
maybe being a little bit more vocal or more external about it as opposed to internal. I think I think both of those things, as well as the way that people have allowing other people to have that understanding of me, all three of those things, um, they, they're 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 ultimately I think I've decided more important than whether on a case by case basis somebody treats me slightly shittier because they know, you know, because in the macro, I think that it's mostly a net positive, which is, which is a, it's a, that's a luxury. That's like a, that's a privilege because for a lot of people, it's not a net positive. Like people finding out, you know, that you have X, Y, Z disability, as we can see, can ruin people's lives. Um, it's, it's a privilege to be surrounded by people that mostly are very supportive of that. Um, but with, within the, within the context of that, privilege or just my particular situation um i just i find it more important increasingly more important um not that people know like in a way of like oh you know he's got this thing and he's special and oh i have to treat him you know specially or whatever but just like knowing knowing a, a knowing a part of myself that like makes things make a lot more sense in many ways for everybody like, I think the biggest thing, I, I didn't even think about this whenever you said this, but the, the biggest thing that made me change my perspective on it was my my brother died and I, he never knew. And not only that, but I was I was very close with my brother whenever we were kids. Like, people always have the, you know, you hear the, the common things that, that siblings say where they're like, oh, whenever I was, we were kids, like, he tortured me and, like, my, you know, my older brother or whatever, like bullied me or whatever. And we fought all the time or whatever. Um, like none of that ever happened. My, my, my brother and I, 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 we never fought. I, I did not like bully him and push him around and all that stuff. We were like best friends. And, 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 uh, as, as we got older, as I moved away, I think in the beginning it was, it was a lot of like my own fault where, um, as when I got older, I started to become more concerned with, you know, other things that you start to become concerned with whenever you become a teenager and then a, and then an early adult in your 20s, um, you know, uh, girlfriends, um, uh, making things, having ambitions, you know, putting, you know, putting on sketch comedy shows and making videos and then eventually career stuff. And you get really wrapped up in all this stuff and you start and you start prioritizing that over personal relationships. I think that's, that happens for a lot of people. And I, and, and so in the beginning, I kind of, I think I distanced myself from him through that process. And then even when I started to stop doing that and I, I started to actually appreciate the relationships that I maybe kind of like was taking for granted for a while, it's just kind of was never quite the same because number one, there had just been so many so long where we hadn't really had that close relationship. It's hard to kind of go back to that. And also I just have a lot of trouble connecting with people in general. Um, it's hard for me to maintain relationships um, when there's not some kind of like specific motivator. Um, like, I mean, I, and I, I think that you would be, I think that you would agree with this, but like the fact that we do this podcast um, has really like opened up our friendship and we know a lot more about each other. We're much ironically because most of this time we've only been on a video screen, but we've become way closer 
doing the podcast and and we've talked about this off podcast before but like that's like one of the bigger values of this show to me it's not like the money which is almost non-existent it's not the audience it's not the like oh it's cool that we have people listening to us or whatever like one of the bigger values of it to me is that it's just like it's literally like one of the things that we do to bond um and uh and one of the things that uh we do to remind each other the aspects of our personalities that we hate about each other. <laughs> I mean, especially whenever you, well, no, maybe it's, equ- maybe it's equal. I was going to say, I was going to say, especially whenever you have to edit the show and you have to like, listen back to it. And, and, but also maybe it's, maybe it's just as bad to have to sit there and listen to it the first time. No, no, it's it, but I agree. I agree. I agree completely. Uh, it's an excuse because it's funny, too, because, like, the our ritual used to be we used to go to this Denny's in Burbank and or in North Hollywood, and we would have dinner and plot and scheme about whatever we were doing or work on the writing project of whatever the thing we were writing at the time was. And uh, the those things, some of them happened and they got made or we made them or pro- we did those projects or whatever, and that was fun. Um, but the productivity of those things was secondary to us hanging out and I just like making things as a way of you know there's an old Doc Hammer Maximum Fun interview where they're interviewing where Jesse Thorne is interviewing Doc Hammer and Jackson Public about maybe it was like season two of Venture Brothers or something and he was like you know when you guys are not on the show do you guys hang out and Doc Hammer was like no we don't really talk to each other and he was like in fact I don't even really like hanging out with people I would rather us get together and all try and like build a table and if we don't even succeed in building the table eh, I don't really care but I would just rather us all gather around that thing and collectively be putting our energy into it and to me that's kind of what the show is you know like yes it's fun you know, I think probably me more than you probably, but I've been recognized out in public for the show, which is really weird. Um, uh, and, you know, it's it's a strange, bizarre experience, but it's also funny when people ask how Spandrew doing or whatever or, you know, condolences for Andrew and I start crying and shaking and going, don't don't bring him up. Don't bring him up. He's not gone as long as we remember him. Um, you know, so those those things aside. That's to me, that's what the show is, really, is just an excuse to make something that we then also get to hang out like the amount of running bits inside the show. There's like 10x that outside the show of things that we either have said on the show that they got edited out because they were too crazy or just the like ephemera of the experience of making the thing of staying up till three in the morning with me yodeling into my microphone when we were making the musical episode or whatever, or, you know, there's just all kinds of these weird experiences that I, you don't get just from like, I will see you next week when we go to dinner, which is fine. Like that's a perfectly fine way of knowing somebody, but it's so much, I don't know. It's a much more textured experience when I can say, uh, you know, that I'm irate that you're 20 minutes late to record again. That's why I love you. You know, you're consistent. consistent in my lack of consistency yeah i just know you know but but there's like i just know certain things about you at this point where like earlier today we were like oh we're gonna record at five yes we're gonna record at five and then i was like okay mentally that'll probably be like 5 15 5 20 maybe probably 5 20 you know just because i just know that that's you're just always late to everything and i'm always early to everything so i have to like meet in the middle and it's only bitten me in the ass once 
there was one time where we were going to record at like 7 p.m. And I was like, there's no way we're recording at 7 p.m. today. He's doing all this other shit. We're going to probably record like 7.45, 8-ish. And so I went on a run and you sent me the Zoom link at 7.01. And I was like, oh my God, fuck. And I was like all the way on Wilshire Western. And I like had to sprint back to my house. And I was like texting you while I was sprinting, being like, I'm just gonna, I just, I had to go to the store. I'll be there in a minute. Oh God. <laughs> yeah, I almost, I almost fucking quit too. So this is fucking bullshit. I know. You were like, you don't understand. I'm the one who's late. You're always on time. You can't be late too. We'll never record. <laughs> but and I think we would I think we would find that in any scenario. Like if we if we didn't do the show. Like I don't think like the show if the show ended we would just like we we would like stop hanging out. We would we would we, it would externalize in other ways cuz the real thing it, the real bonding or whatever like you were just saying is it's not the show it's just like the the making things or like the the socializing around creative uh, creative I don't want to say projects but like just creative like ideating or like just the 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 idea of like talking about things creatively so we would it, it would just it would it would become something else if you know if the show went away I mean I've literally but I've literally said that to you before like we've we did a project a while ago that is fully, you know, 80% finished. And I literally said to you, I don't care if we finish this. Like, I literally said, I don't care. Like, that's not what's important. What's important is that we just keep making things. And like, you know, the next one, maybe we get to 85% of the way done. And then the one after that, we get to 90. And then maybe the thing after that gets done. And I don't mean that in a toxic, like, self sabotage way. I think it's very apparent that I'm highly productive and make shit constantly. Like, I'm not a type of person who has the identity of a tortured artist who makes things and then never finishes a project. That's not what I'm advocating for. I'm just saying that you're a creative person, I'm a creative person, and together we make stuff that is different than if either one of us were to make it, which is what's fun. It's cool to see that synthesis come together and have an idea of what it's going to be. And then when we get into the nitty gritty, the ins, the outs, then it becomes something else. And and I, and, and I think that we would we would maintain that in different forms, you know, because largely because on my end, you know, I, I, I can't speak for you, but on my end, I'm older and more mature and I'm more self-aware of making sure that I maintain relationships in that way. Um, and I don't take them for granted or just like because the podcast stops happening, I just completely fall off the fucking face of the planet and you and we never talk again but for better or worse that's kind of how i have to maintain relationships um but uh, unfortunately when i was younger and not as sort of like aware of that or whatever i i allowed you know relationships to fall by the wayside and one of those was my brother and um i i have a lot i have a lot of guilt associated with the fact that i really um the 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 relationship wasn't as strong as it could have been and that i didn't really we didn't really talk as much as we should have and a lot of that was like failings on my end of like my inability to connect my inability to communicate in a way my you know the way that sometimes just the things that i want to say just kind of get trapped um and i don't really know how to express them um and and so you know one of the big things that really like kind of uh, turn turn me around or, or or made me kind of change my perspective on it was 
thinking about the fact that like he died and I he never knew that that was like part of the reason he never got to understand that there was like something that actually kind of in some ways caused me to not be able to express myself in those ways. Um, and I wish that he could have at least known that that was the case and that we that could have been a great permission structure for discussing that and working through those things because I found that sometimes it's really hard for me to talk directly about my feelings, but I can talk about my feelings in the context of the fact that I have trouble expressing those feelings because of XYZ factor. And so it could have been a, it could have been a great mechanism for discussing those things. And we never got to do that because he didn't know. So I think that was like one, that was the big like watershed moment of like reflecting on that and being like, yeah, I, I shouldn't just be like hiding this from people and not talking about it, you know? So yeah, that's in, in answer to your question that you asked me three hours ago. Uh, that's that's why I, st I started being more open about it. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Uh, before before we uh, just get back into the bleakness of this, I, I feel like I actually I meant to play this before and I just forgot. But we we should uh, we should break we should break the tension a little bit by watching this baby. Here they come, clickety clack down the track. It's lots and lots of trains. Two of the greatest train videos we've ever offered. And now through this special TV offer, you get two videos for the price of one. You get big trains, little trains, steam trains, diesel freight and passenger trains, even trains that blow through snow, old trains, new trains, fast trains, slow trains, smoking trains, even trains from around the world, plus toy trains, trolley trains. And this is insane. When you order lots and lots of trains, hear the whistle blow, feel the heat. Do you think that this is what this is so fucked up? But do you think this is what Darius jerks off to? Like, you think this is yes. what he watches? Yes. I mean, he said that driving the train was like losing his virginity. So, like, I think it's fair game to say that he jerks off to lots and lots of trains. <laughs> but yeah, that 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 DVD compilation came out in the late '90s, uh, and that, I watched that commercial many a times on TV, and it's just a, such a shame because. That's all he needed. He just needed. The, he just needed those DVDs, but they, they just they weren't out yet. They didn't come out to the late nineties. They could they could have saved him. He just needed that two DVD compilation set. Lots and lots of trains. One of these cases in which his diagnosis hurt him was in the case of his assigned public defender Stephen Jackson, a New York defense attorney who was known for trying to get involved with trials that appeared in newspaper headlines so he could make a name for himself. At first, Jackson promised to advocate for Darius. But Darius eventually learned that Jackson did not have his best interest at heart and simply liked his name showing up on the news, often just not showing up for court dates or doing much to improve his situation at all. But when Darius eventually grew disillusioned with Jackson and realized he was not going to help him, he begged the judge to let him get a different lawyer. The judge, however, ruled that Darius was not mentally fit to make his own legal decisions on account of the Asperger's diagnosis. By the judge's logic, if the defense was allegedly that Darius couldn't control his obsession with stealing trains and buses due to his disability, then why should he be able to control his legal representation? Which is fucked up because, like, even if that were the case, 
this is the thing that's like really fucked up about this whole situation is that Darius is just this like this rogue homeless guy. He has no he's got no family supporting him. He's got no friends supporting him. He's got he's not part of any kind of institution or anything like that. He's just this random homeless guy. So he's going into these trials like just alone and he's being assigned public defenders. So, you know, whenever these situations happen, you know, they, they, they're like, oh, you're not mentally fit to make your own decisions about changing your lawyer. But then, like, even if that was true, which I don't think it is, I don't I think he was perfectly capable of saying I want a different lawyer. But even if it was the case that he was not mentally fit, then who the fuck is he's got to have. So, you can't just say that and then not have somebody who can make him make that decision for him. Like the, the, the if he had some kind of power of attorney, some kind of guardian, some kind of like uh, conservator that was like able to execute decisions on his behalf. That's one thing to say you can't make your own decisions, but you can't just be like, oh, you're mentally unfit to make your own decisions. So like you're just fucked and you have to have this lawyer who doesn't show up. That That's insane. That's like that's incredibly unreasonable. Darius wasn't allowed to fire Jackson and therefore continued to be held in jail throughout 2011 and into 2012 without actually being formally charged with a crime. They'd set a court date, everyone would show up except for Jackson, Darius would have no legal representation and wouldn't be allowed to represent himself, the trial would be postponed another several months, and Darius was just thrown back in jail. Can we just talk for a second that that what if the reason Steven Jackson didn't show up is because he was running Steve Jackson games? Yeah, yeah, he was inventing Illuminati, um, whatever that game was called. Yeah, or Munchkin. Maybe he was playtesting Munchkin. Yeah, he's like, oh, I, I can't, I can't show up to this court date, Darius. I'm, I'm about to, I'm about to just make a bunch of eighth graders in 2007's day. This, this is going to define the next five years of their lives. You're, that's that's a that's a solid theory. I think you're right. I hope no information comes to light in the next few paragraphs that completely contradicts that. That was until June of 2012 when Stephen Jackson, Darius's incompetent lawyer, was arrested and charged with several counts of fraud for stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars from clients and banks through check scams and using that money to fund the development of Munchkin. Darius was finally allowed to be assigned a new lawyer, only after the previous one was revealed to be an actual criminal more deserving of sitting behind bars than Darius could ever dream of being. Jackson has since died, at least. He was soon assigned to Sally Butler, a much more qualified New York public defender. Heading into the middle of 2012 with a new lawyer, the trial was actually starting to take shape, and it wasn't looking great for Darius. The prosecution was looking for a three- to six-year prison sentence, and Darius's options for getting any kind of plea bargain were slim. What's worse, if he didn't take the sentence and instead fought the charges and lost, he'd be looking at seven to 15 years in a maximum security prison. His final option would be pleading insanity based on his disability. In this case, he could avoid prison, but would be released to psychiatric custody where he could effectively be kept as a ward of the state indefinitely. Darius's legal defense chose the first option, and he was sentenced to five years in Rikers Island, New York. Which is just like, this part is like so, this is like insane and terrifying because like clinically, I'm just using myself as an example, Clinically, I have the same exact diagnosis as Darius. It's like level one autism, which is like technically, if this was, you know, 20 years ago or whatever, I'd have Asperger's syndrome. And they're just like, oh, you have this thing? You're going to go into a mental institution forever because you're criminally insane. 
That's like that's fucking terrifying. I mean, I hate to say this again, but it's it's weird, like supervillain logic. You know, like he's obviously not that. He's not that. But the logic with by which he's governed, you would think he's the Joker. You know, like. You're not allowed personal autonomy. You're not allowed reputable representation. And we're going to throw you in Arkham forever. Then you're going to get out. And because you're mentally ill, you're going to have this compulsion to steal a train and you're going to go back. The train master must be locked up. Yeah. And the only thing separating and I only thing is kind of is kind of regressive. But the only sep- thing separating me from him is just like that he's black, I guess. Like, think that's it. And that your obsession with trains stops just short of a psychosexual connection. Yeah, yeah, that, that's uh, that's also a factor. And I also think that, like, I do think that a significant component of this, of how he's been brutalized in society, is due to the fact that he has this disability that just is either, to a, almost a certain degree, willfully misunderstood. But... It's. It, I do think about the fact that going way back, if you remember this, if you can conjure this up in your in the little few little blinking bulbs in your mind of memory. Um, <laughs> the fuck is that? There's. I mean, there's. You're 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 acting offended, but there's no way you remember this. Okay, let's see. Let's see if I remember. Hold on. Okay, let's go. Let's do it. Let's see. But I can't help drawing the comparison. Between the the um, the the John McAfee episode where early in his career, he worked operating trains in the in the in the in a public transit system. Yeah, you don't remember. You don't I don't remember, remember this at all. <laughs> I don't remember this at all. <laughs> I don't remember this at all. I, I mean, I remember the John McAfee episode, obviously, but my memory is more around uh, him paying women to shit in his mouth than. It's the fact that the guy like hung out on a train once. Yeah, I just listened to the episode and I remember this. Um, but but he his first job was like literally he wasn't a train operator. He was a guy who like created the train routes and the schedules and then like participated in the operation of the train more from like the control room, not like literally on the train driving it. Um, but the whole thing was that he that was his job. And he would just like take like acid and show up to work and then just be like fucking driving trains on acid. And he just did that for for like years. And the only and the only reason why he ended up getting fired was because he like he took some mushrooms and then like had like a fucking ego death meltdown and then like disappeared from his post. And he was found in like the next town over in a dumpster naked. And then they were finally like, yeah, uh, you're obviously fired. But before that, he was just like fucking driving trains on acid. And meanwhile, Darius was flawlessly operating trains and he and it's criminalized. And and I can only I can only compare like think of the main motivating difference between those two things, which is that one is this charismatic, like conventionally not attractive, but conventionally like normal looking white guy. And the other guy is. A black guy. That's like the only difference that I can see between those two scenarios of why they would just let a guy fucking drive trains on acid and not care. And then he wouldn't go to prison afterward when they found out he was doing it, you know? Yeah, no shit. Talk about reckless endangerment. Jesus. In November of 2013, not long after Darius's sentence began, a huge Blood versus Crips riot broke out in prison. The riot lasted around an hour, and dozens of inmates and guards were injured, including prisoners with stab wounds, eyes gouged out, and other gory wounds. 
Darius tried his best to lay low and avoid the violence of the prison, but after lying down for a nap in his cell, was awoken by feeling extreme burning pain on his stomach. He shot up in his prison bed to discover that someone had thrown scalding baby oil on him, resulting in third-degree burns to his skin. Who knows what set it off, but in just minutes, there's chaos in a housing area at this Rikers Island jail. That particular evening, I had just got out the shower, and I left my stuff down by one of the tables. Next thing you know, tables are flying, chairs are flying. I'm like, well, gee, what in the world is going on? It lasts for nearly an hour. Room handles swung, chairs tossed, cups of hot water thrown. I was like, well, which way do I go? <laughs> I mean, like, I felt like I was a sitting duck because I didn't know who they were going after. Look at some of these injuries from this fight. A man's face bloodied and beaten. This one's neck slashed all the way across. A slice to this inmate's stomach. And one victim reportedly lost his eye after being gouged with a broomstick handle. And it's so crazy because he's saying it so nonchalantly and he's kind of laughing at it like it's like a funny story. But this is a fucking nightmare. Like, the prison system is already a, a nightmare. Like, I'm not saying it's not a nightmare for all these people that are in there, you know, for much more drastic reasons. But Darius is like the most nonviolent person possible. His crime is like, I wanted to be a city employee. That's his crime. His crime is, I wanted to be a city employee. And he's in this prison and people are fucking like murdering each other, gouging each other's eyeballs out. That's a, it's, it's, it's a fucking nightmare. It's a nightmare. Things begin to feel bleak for Darius, who was used to staying in less dire correctional facilities. He felt scared of his surroundings and unsure if he was going to make it out. At one point, he claims to have attempted suicide, tying a noose around his neck and trying to hang himself from his prison bed. Three years later, on December 24th of 2013, Darius was released on parole with $40 in his pocket. This time, he vowed to go straight and never return to jail again. And he had a shot at it. His parents in North Carolina desperately wanted him to come live with them. His dad was suffering from dementia and his mom had fibromyalgia. He could go live with him, take his mind off trains by being their caregiver, and be physically removed from the source of his temptation by 500 miles. There was just one problem. His parole required him to stay in New York City. He wasn't allowed to leave, trapped with the one thing that he seemed to be physically incapable of resisting, the ever-present allure of that warmth under the city. The system that had Darius in shackles for the better part of 30 years seemed intent on pushing him to repeat the cycle all over again and prove its own ineffectiveness at making life any better for anybody. But it seemed like this time, despite everything stacked against him, Darius was determined to actually go straight for good. So going back to this idea of, of like, there, there must have been some kind of special exception or some kind of thing, you know, obviously, typically, whenever you are bailed out of jail or you're awaiting trial or you get out of jail and you go on parole or whatever, you're required to stay in the city that you were arrested in. You can't, like, leave the city or whatever. But in this very specific situation, being able to leave the city was like the primary thing that could have helped Darius to stop going back to prison. And the fact that they couldn't just make that special exception of like, yes, normally whenever you're on parole, you're not allowed to leave the city you were in jail, you were arrested in. But in this specific situation, it would actually fix everything if you were just given the special permission to go live in North Carolina. They're just like, no, you have to stay in New York City 
Fuck you. He stayed out of trouble all the way through the new year. He was meeting regularly with his lawyer, social worker, and parole officer. In prison, he had converted to Islam and was staying with a religious mentor in his extra room. He even started volunteering, giving tours at the New York Public Transit Museum, a job he was not only perfect for, but helped to satisfy that itch he had for returning to his life of trains. He might make it out just yet, but then he hit another snag. People started calling and complaining about Darius giving tours at the Transit Museum. It seemed some people didn't like the idea of a notorious train thief representing the city's transit history. Management was unfortunately forced to ask him to stop coming in. Darius was devastated. This was this is what I uh, alluded to, I think, in the last episode of like there almost was a situation where they did figure out a solution that benefited everybody and it could have just fixed everything. And it was this. Darius started volunteering, giving tours at the transit city, uh, transit system museum, which is literally like the entrance to the transit uh, system museum in New York City is it's a subway platform like it's a stairs going down into a subway platform so it feels like you're going down into the subway and then the inside of the museum is a recreation of a subway platform and subway cars and then it's got all these these exhibits and things like that and so he was able to like go down get the feeling of going down into the subway being in an environment that felt like the subway and he was able to do what he basically did best which was go around and just talk about the fucking subway and give tr- and and feel like he was helping people by giving these tours like if there there's it's highly likely that if they hadn't called and complained on him that this would have just been the fix and he would just be doing this right now and he would have never committed a crime again but but no it couldn't have it couldn't work it couldn't be done these fucking snitches so fucked one of the stipulations of his parole was that he wasn't allowed to set foot inside the subway he was ordered to wear an ankle bracelet, and if he even so much as stepped on the first step of the stairs down into the subway, he'd return to jail. After the loss of his transit museum gig, he gave in to weakness, cut off his ankle bracelet, and started riding the trains again. Only a little more than a week after his release on Christmas Eve, he was caught violating his parole and sent back to prison for another year. In August of 2015, at the age of 50, Darius was once again released from jail, this time with no parole stipulations he could finally go live with his parents. After sticking around New York City for a few days, that's exactly what he did. He left the city and went to live in North Carolina. He got there by train. He met his mom at the station and vowed once and for all to turn his life around. And it seemed like this time it was for real. Besides, there was no subway in North Carolina, so how was he gonna get in trouble anyway? Darius quickly learned that if the temptation wasn't there, the next thing to get you was the boredom. Darius felt unmoored in North Carolina. If he wasn't in prison or on the train, he just didn't know what to do with himself. And this was like that times a thousand, because there was absolutely no option of stepping onto the street, walking a few blocks, and being back underground riding a train. He was truly landlocked, and he had to look for ways to keep himself busy and from going insane. I've spent the last 50 years as the train guy, but guess what? I'd like to be known as just Darius. Darius came out of his shell. He let the trains go. Darius made a genuine attempt at turning over a new leaf and becoming the drama-free family man he and everybody else wanted him to be. But sadly, it just didn't stick. That little voice at the back of his mind, the devil on his shoulder, finally proved that it couldn't be ignored. At some point, a few months after reuniting with his parents, Darius disappeared from their house in North Carolina and started living in New York City again. He attempted to get a job, but wasn't able to find anything consistent. With no money and facing homelessness yet again, Darius did the only thing he knew how to do. On November 11th of 2015, 
he jumped on a bus at Port Authority and took it for a ride until he was eventually caught and arrested. Walked into the Port Authority and allegedly drove away with a bus. Now there are questions about who's keeping watch of a major transit hub. Good evening once again. I'm Royce Dubois. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Christine Johnson. Now, thankfully, it was just a thrill ride and not part of a terror plot. But the theft of a Greyhound bus is raising concerns about security at the Port Authority bus terminal. CBS 2's Tony Aiello has more. Inside the Port Authority bus terminal, the talk at Gate 72 was about the Greyhound bus stolen from here the day before. It's dangerous for a person to just take the bus. Matter of fact, he could have took the bus with people on the board like he was the driver. There were no passengers on the 56-seat bus when cops found it in Brooklyn. Just legendary transit trickster Darius McCollum busted dozens of times for commandeering buses and subway trains. He has an amazing ability to pull something like that off. Investigators say Darius McCollum entered the bus terminal around 1 o'clock Wednesday afternoon, intent on stealing a bus, but not dressed as a bus driver. He allegedly had a law enforcement badge pinned to his shirt and a phony Homeland Security ID card. A veteran bus driver told me off camera he's not surprised McCollum was able to get past Greyhound workers at the gate. If he looks legit and has an identification and shows him some kind of fake ID, it's pretty much easy to get in. If the driver is not securing his bus, it's pretty easy to get into a bus and start it. And McCollum said to have an encyclopedic knowledge of all things transit related. Well, he no doubt knew the early afternoon was a good time to strike. There's no one around and it's pretty easy to get one at that time. A Port Authority source says police do random checks at the bus terminal, but Greyhound and other carriers are supposed to lock their buses if they're left unattended. Greyhound wouldn't comment on the investigation other than to say the company is cooperating. He went back to trial and was facing upwards of 15 years in prison for his most recent crime. While he was sitting in jail awaiting sentencing, even more people were about to be introduced to his story. Back in 2013, filmmaker Adam Irving had stumbled across Darius's story on Wikipedia and started doing more research on him. He eventually contacted Jude Domsky, an author who wrote a 2003 play based on Darius's life called Boy Steals Train, and had developed a personal relationship with him. Through this contact, Irving was able to send letters to and eventually visit Darius in jail. Over the next few years, Irving shot Off the Rails, the Darius McCollum story, a documentary chronicling the life and struggles of the most notorious train thief in New York City history that recounted the events from Darius's first train operation as a 15-year-old back in 1980 all the way up to his arrest in 2015. The movie was released in October of 2016 and as a result caught the attention of many more advocates. And yeah, that, that quote from before was basically like the final quote from... Darius at the end of this documentary, um, kind of as he was thinking that things were going in a hopeful direction for himself, or at least he wanted people to believe it that it was. Um, and that's kind of like the final thing he says in the documentary before it reveals that he was just arrested again. It also caught the attention of Hollywood, and Darius's life story was optioned to make a big budget movie starring Julia Roberts as his defense attorney. Many, including Darius himself, saw this as an opportunity to get a big payday. It could help him afford legal funds, more consistent housing upon release, and other things that would materially improve his life. However, the MTA felt differently, and shortly after the announcement of the movie, they expressed plans to take Darius to court and ensure that he would not be able to personally profit from the film, citing something called the Son of Sam Law, which was enacted in the 1970s 
and was designed to ensure that criminals could not profit from movies or books about their crimes, and that all royalties earned would be directed to the victims of the crime, in this case, the MTA. Like, come on. There's a difference between this guy and the son of Sam. Like, come on. Yeah, it's such bullshit. And I mean, not only is there a difference between this guy and son of Sam, but also the purpose of the rule, as you can probably very obviously deduce, is to make sure that if there's a movie made about like a fucking murderer, that they can't profit off of it and that the money would go to the victims of the families of these people who were murdered, not the money would go to this city organization that just fucking that he just drove some trains a couple of times for for like that's that's insane whether or not this would have held up in court isn't known because the movie option was quietly dropped shortly after a large outcry of people begging the court system to do right by Darius followed which partially inspired the judge on his 2015 arrest trial to eventually rule in 2018 after three years sitting in jail that he'd be released to psychiatric care rather than sit in prison for another 10 years. Darius was transferred to a psychiatric institution in January of 2018. However, by October, a judge ruled that he had become dangerously mentally ill, and he was transferred to Rochester Forensic Psychiatric Hospital, an institution for the criminally insane. He still resides there to this day, and while many advocates continue to fight for some kind of solution to get him back out into the general population and working towards a more productive life, Statistics and past experience show that things aren't looking great for him. There's no lesson, no summation to this story like there was for David Hahn, because the story isn't over yet, disturbingly so. Sitting here typing these words while thinking that Darius is currently sitting locked up in an institution somewhere being subjected to God knows what is haunting. Many people struggle with integrating into society, sometimes due to their struggles, whether they're addictive, psychological, physical, or financial in nature, they commit crimes or cause harm. These situations are often very complex because you want to and need to have empathy for their situation, recognize how our healthcare, financial, and justice systems have failed them, but also acknowledge that what they've done is serious or wrong. Navigating that is very tough, and we clearly have not figured it out as a society. Darius' situation, however, feels less tough. His compulsion is to be an upstanding member of society, a thankless city worker doing his job quietly and efficiently. He never hurt anyone, never came close to hurting anyone. He committed many crimes, yes, but somebody somewhere could have come up with a solution to make that stop happening a long time ago if they even remotely cared. Whether it be giving him the job at the MTA that he always wanted, letting him give tours at the stupid museum, or just putting him into a therapy program for his compulsions rather than continually throwing him back in jail. But they didn't. And so he, out of everybody, has had his life utterly ruined by this toxic interplay between an ignorant and anemic understanding of a disability and a punitive justice system that recidivates more than it rehabilitates. Many people would say that the justice system is broken, but the thing is, it's not. You can see it in the YouTube comments under the various news reports that have been uploaded about Darius' arrest over the years. The many, you did the crime, now do the times, and play stupid games, win stupid prizes. The resounding sentiment of, I have no sympathy for a criminal, that overwhelmingly chokes out the discourse. People like Darius are inconvenient for many, and they would rather he and others like him just be gone, out of sight. 
They'll willingly dehumanize Darius in exchange for him just kind of being quietly swept off the map so that they can go about their day and not have to think about or be bothered by his problems. That's what the system does, and it's working perfectly. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. If you'd like to find me online, you can do so at heydavebaker.com or on the socials at xdavebakerx. If you'd like to pre-order my book, which is coming out very soon, Mary Tyler Moorhawk, which is kind of like a combination of Buckaroo Banzai meets House of Leaves, you can do that wherever you get books. Target, Amazon, indie bookstores, Golden Apple Comics, all kinds of good stuff. Spandrew, where can people find you? You can't find me on social media because I'm not on social media, but if you want to pay your respects to the dear, beloved Papa Pricey that we all miss so much, you can get his book, his comic Deadbolt AI Private Eye. It's available on his website that's still up somehow. Some angel investor is paying for the hosting fees. And you can buy his book, Deadbolt AI Private Eye, on dapricerights.com. You can follow us on social media, searching Deep Cuts Podcast on all the socials, Facebook. You can join our Facebook group, the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group, where we talk about the show and make memes. You can join our Discord server by going to bit.ly.com slash deepcutsdiscord, where we talk about the show, make memes, play games, and other fun stuff. You can follow us on Instagram at Deep Cuts Pod, um, TikTok at Mystery Treehouse. You can follow me on TikTok because I fucking lied and I am on social media. I don't know. How do you how do you keep falling for this? I've done this like, what, five times at this point and you keep falling for it? I am on social media, motherfucker. At on, You can follow me on TikTok at Dead Boy Detective where I make cool videos about random stuff. Um, and if you want to, considering that this is like an ongoing thing that is, it's not like David Hahn where he passed away in the early 2000s. Darius McCollum is still, to this day, locked up in a mental institution and just being subjected to fucking God knows what. So if you want to check out the story and read more about it and maybe get some more like news, and if you want to maybe get involved somehow monetarily or in an advo- advocacy uh, position, um, you can go to freedariusnow.com, which is kind of like the official hub for his story where you can um, interact with media about him and you can even, like, you know, give donations and uh, get involved in some way. so many parts so many parts just the, the fact that you did that at all the fact that it's just a piece of bread it's not even toasted not even any butter on it and also the fact that like it looks comically large in your hand <laughs> it looks like you're it's eating. not that big it's just it's just big it looks like you're eating a cartoon piece of bread. I knew that would work, and I was waiting till I finished, and I was like, this is going to be good. But it landed. It landed better than I thought. <laughs> it's not even toast. <laughs> Spandrew. Spandrew.
I don't have a toaster, bro. <laughs> Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by D. Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com.